Amen. I am He. Um, this weekend is, of course, Labor Day, and I know some of our number are traveling today. For those of you who are here, we do, even though in spite of the fact that it's Labor Day this weekend, um, tomorrow specifically, uh, we are having normal Sunday night community groups, and uh, in here we're going to have Sunday night with Pastor Burris as the first Sunday of the month, and so I invite you to join us for those. For those of you who are in uh, middle school or high school, we have uh, the youth ministry is going to be happening in the north wing, and then also we've got, uh, we have a small groups that happens for our kids' ministries also tonight. And so, in spite of the fact that it may be a, um, <clears throat> a holiday weekend, we have everything is, is headed the right direction. We're moving into the fall right now, and so we're so excited about that, and so make sure to join us uh, for that. I do want to, um, and I hope, my prayer throughout the song the choir was singing was just that the Holy Spirit would be softening up your hearts for me. And so I hope he did that, and if not, boy, I hope he starts doing it right now. Um, because uh, what we are doing today, I want to I really just talk to you about one of the elements of our service. And... Um, we take our role here at Praise pretty seriously. And for those of us who are on staff, we don't just throw the service together. The, we think through the elements that are a part of every one of our services. And so you'll notice at the beginning of this service, we always begin, or right near the beginning, somewhere in there, there is a, a call, a call to worship. And that's not just to try to get people in from the lobby although that's normally a part of it. We're just like, hey, come on in. Let's get this thing started. But it's not just about, hey, let's get this thing started. Very specifically, we're trying to do something there. Because what we see, the pattern we see in Scripture, first off, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to interact with God. And I hope that that's why you came. You came to worship Him. You came to hear the Word of God, okay? That's why you're here today. And if we're seeking to interact with God, the pattern we see in Scripture is that we always interact with God in response to His call to us to interact with Him. And so why we do that, we begin the service, is it seems appropriate that we would just align ourselves with what God does. So if God calls to us and says, come, and let's, let's meet together, that we should begin our services with a call, hey, let's just meet together with God. It makes sense, right? So we do that very purposely. But that's not the part of the service I want to talk to you about. I, I, I actually want to talk to you about the part at the end of service, which is also a call. Because at the end of every single service, Sunday morning, you can be pretty much guaranteed that Pastor Allen will bring it to a point where there is a call for salvation. Every single service. It doesn't matter if we have a missionary. It doesn't matter if I preach ten ways that you can make me happy. It doesn't matter. We're going to bring it right back to the cross. We're going to bring it right back to Jesus Christ. And we're going to give people an opportunity to respond to that call to salvation. Because that is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most important piece of the service. As we gather, that's what we're here to do. Provide opportunity for that very thing to happen. I meet with a guy. Um, a couple weeks ago was the last time we got together. I've texted him a few times since. But as part of us meeting together, this is a guy who just wanted to get together and talk about life and... Um, we've done it multiple times. 
He sees me as a mentor, and yet this last time as we were talking, I asked him about Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And he said to me, you know, Alan, I don't believe that. I don't believe it's true. I think the evidence points the other direction. And I I stopped for a moment because I do have to consider how am I spending my time And every time I say yes to one thing, I have to say no to something else. That's just the way this thing works. And so I I looked him in the eye and I said, why are you getting together with me? And he said, well, because I think you've got some elements of life figured out. And I think of you as a mentor. And I would like you to kind of help me find a good path in life. And at this point, like, my heart is totally and completely broken, right? So I'm praying under my, under, you know, subconscious, not subconsciously, consciously, but under my breath, I'm just praying, oh God, oh God, oh God, do something in this young man's heart, do something in this young man's heart. But not only did it break my heart, it broke my brain. Because for me, the most important thing is Jesus Christ. And in my life, like, Every single thing that I have that is good, everything that I believe, everything that I hold to, I see Jesus Christ as the source of it all. And if you remove Jesus, I got nothing to give you. (laughs) And I told them as much. I said, I'm so sorry, but you've misread this whole situation. Because if you don't take Jesus, nothing else comes along with him. That's all I've got to give to you. And I am convinced of the fact that what we do with Jesus Christ is the most important thing about us. So I'm thinking through all of this, and I I really felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking that we needed to do a whole series on salvation. And so I'm looking at the different scriptures that felt like the right and appropriate scriptures for us to, to read through as part of that. And, and I came to one in particular that's kind of a hard verse for us to read. And so if it's something that, boy, if you're timid, you might want to take this opportunity to step out, act like you're going to the bathroom and just leave. But John chapter 8, verse 24, if you don't have your Bibles, grab one of the ones in the seats. But, but John chapter 8, verse 24 in the church Bible will be on page 894. If you haven't done it yet, grab your phone, open it up to praise.fyi. You'll find the notes under the message notes along with all the verses that we're going to be reading today. But in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says something that really brings it all right to a point. And how we deal with this verse, boy, it, it, it will speak a whole lot about how we view Scripture as a whole. Because I believe the Bible, and I believe this verse is true. Here's what Jesus says there in chapter 8, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Okay, there's no way around this. Jesus brings it right to the point. He says, how you deal with me will determine whether or not you die in your sins. And he says, let's just help you recognize which way the default switch is flipped. The default switch is flipped to 
you die in your sins. Okay, so this isn't me. If you know me, you know I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher, okay? That's not my style. But this is what Jesus says. So how we deal with this, and Jesus is making a God statement. He says, I am he. And how we deal with that and what we do with that statement will determine whether or not we follow the default path or something supernatural happens and we go a different direction, okay? And what it comes down to is, do we believe that I am he? So I wanted to do this series on salvation, and I came back to this verse, and I came back to it, and I came back to it, and I really just felt like the Lord was leading me to say or to, to, to turn the direction just slightly on it. Because to know and to understand and to get our minds around what our salvation is and what it means and what it looks like, we really need to know God. We need to understand who our God is before we can understand what it means. And so for Jesus, he says, believe that I am he. Deal with that, and how you deal with that will determine what happens with your eternal soul, okay? So this is, this is what Jesus has to say and how we deal with that. And Jesus is named Jesus. Uh, uh, Yahweh is salvation is what that means. He's not the only one in the Bible who's named Yahweh is salvation. If you know Yahweh, you will know salvation. Joshua is named Yahweh is salvation. Uh, Isaiah is named Yahweh is salvation. Like you start picking up on the fact that knowing God is really closely tied to our salvation. In fact, here's what I want to do today. I want to flip over to a passage in Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43 for this series that's only going to be a three-week series we're calling I Am He. I Am He. As we understand and know God and believe that Jesus is, I am He. That if that's true, if we believe that that's the case, then we will have salvation. That it speaks very deeply to what our salvation is. And Isaiah chapter 43, I, I love the book of Isaiah for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think the Poetry in Isaiah is the most beautiful poetry in the entire Bible. Um, And besides that, the book itself is incredible. The first 39 chapters, it's 66 chapters long, okay? So the first 39 of those chapters are written to the people of Judah and to Israel before they're carried off into captivity, primarily Judah but also to Israel, the northern and the southern tribes. But then the last 27 chapters, chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66, are not written to them in that time frame. It's written to the people after they go into captivity. And as it's written to these people that are in the future, he writes to them encouraging that soon God is going to bring them out of captivity. It's really an incredible thing that happens where the last 27 chapters are written to a people who are in the midst of exile in a foreign land surrounded by foreign gods and foreign beliefs and idols and all of those things. And he writes there and he reveals himself and says, I'm going to deliver you. Right in the midst of that is Isaiah 43. I think it's important for us to read this for a couple of reasons. Three times in Isaiah chapter 43, God reveals himself as I am he. We'll read those and we'll come back to this three times over the next three weeks. 
Isaiah 43. The other reason why is I'm convinced that as far as the Old Testament is concerned, if there's a people that we are most like, it is the people of God in exile. Because multiple times in the New Testament, it says that's exactly who we are. We are the people of God in exile, in a foreign land. And we are surrounded by all sorts of pressures, and we are surrounded by all sorts of beliefs. And the people in Isaiah actually have, it seems, based on the prophetic word that is spoken to them, they have a misunderstanding even of why they are where they are and what they should be doing, because it seems almost as if they believe that God has failed and that the other gods have won. You can pick that up as you read through it. But in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, for example, it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So to this people who are getting all kinds of confused mixed messaging about who God is and what he's about and and what's important and how they should be focused, he says, I am he and there is no God before me and none after me. He reveals himself clearly. He says, I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to save you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1. Here's what it says. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. It's good, right? For the people of Israel who were so closely identified God's deliverance with water, going through the Red Sea, walking through the Jordan on dry ground as he was bringing them into the land, here he says to them in the same way, remember those things that I'm the one who's delivered you in the past. And he says, I've brought you through the waters. And he says, and when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. This is encouraging and uplifting, right? This is good stuff. And a lot of times I'll read it and I'll be like, Wow, God, that's encouraging and uplifting. And then I move on. And the problem is I think we do that too much. We just read it a little too fast and we're like, all right, I'm encouraged and uplifted and ready for the day. The fire will not consume me. I will not be burned up. But if you look at the first verse, what are the first two words of the first verse? But now. Which means that This passage stands in opposition or against, in some way, the passage which came right before it, right? But now. Which means that to understand this passage, we really should back up about two verses and see what it says there. Isaiah 42, verse 24. 
Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So, right before this encouraging and uplifting passage is a passage where God reveals himself as the reason why they are in exile. You want to know who allowed you to be plundered? You want to know who allowed you to be looted? It was me. I allowed this. In fact, I have poured out on you the heat of my anger and allowed flames to surround you. God is the one who allowed it because of their sin, because of their worship of other gods, because of the fact that they took advantage of the poor and were not just. God is just, and he is judge, and he is also a God who will pour out wrath. Okay? And if we do not understand that about our God, then who we think he is is not fully formed. If we think that he is only a God, see, because we think he's a God of love and grace, perfect in his love and grace, and he is. But as perfect as he is in his love and his grace, he is also perfect in his justice and in his wrath. And if you don't have that side of this thing, then the love and the grace gets awfully shallow and our salvation gets paper thin. That's why the words, but, now, are so vitally important. Because he says, I poured this out on you. You want to know where that fire came from? You want to know where those flames came from? They are from me. And then he says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. He is saying, yes, I poured out justice on you. Yes, you deserve my wrath. I am a just judge as God. But now, wait a second. What changed between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 43? The people didn't. They didn't cry out for help. They didn't say, God, we're calling to you, save us. No. The only thing that has changed is God has now declared his grace to them. It doesn't begin with them cleaning up their act and getting it all together. 
It begins with God saying, I am calling to you right now. Yes, you deserve justice. Yes, you deserve wrath. But I am calling to you as the one whom I have created and the one that I am going to redeem. God's call always comes first. We don't get it figured out and then God says, okay, now you're saved. It always begins with when we were yet sinners... Jesus Christ died for us. The call, the invitation goes out, and then we respond to it. That is the only difference between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 43. And so he says, just by his grace, those flames that I've poured out on you will not consume you. But I am a just God. And I am perfect in my wrath. I am also perfect in my grace and my mercy. And he continues on, and he says right after this, and I think this is just so incredibly beautiful. He reveals himself. He says, remember, I am he. You need to know and believe and understand that I am he. Here's who I am. Verse 3. For I am the Lord your God. Now, If you do not grasp the sheer depth of that statement, the Lord, your God, hear the next one, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One, the perfect one, the one who is above, the one who is separate, the one who is not like you, the one who is perfect in righteousness and justice and grace and mercy, the Holy One, but he doesn't just leave it as the Holy One. He ties it together with the Holy One of Israel. He is separate, he is above, he is perfect, but then when he is revealing himself, He doesn't just reveal himself as the Holy One. He reveals himself as the Holy One of Israel. He takes a sinful people and he ties them together with himself with the word of. He's the Holy One of Israel. That word of is incredibly costly. The fact that he takes his sinlessness and holy perfection and yokes it together with a sinful people who do not deserve him requires that he not only be the Holy One of Israel, but that he also be their Savior. Which is why it says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It requires that he pay a ransom. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. This is beautiful, and it's perfect, and it's righteous, and it's graceful, and it's merciful. But if we miss out on the just God, and, and the justness of God is something that is encouraging to me. Because that means that I don't have to chase after my own justice. 
Like, if somebody wrongs me, that's not my responsibility to chase after them and get what they have wronged me back. Instead, I can hand it over to God, and he will be perfectly just, and I know that he will be. But as much as he is the just and perfect God, that means that I cannot come to him. And yet he then says, I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the Holy One of Allen. I yoke myself. I even define myself. I limit, I mean, because even by defining himself as the Holy One of Israel, he limits himself, doesn't he? Because when he just defined himself as the Holy One, it was enough for him to just be the Holy One. But now when he defines himself and introduces himself and calls himself the Holy One of Israel, now he needs a people to be the people of Israel so that he can be the Holy One of Israel. He limits himself with the word of and connecting himself to a sinful people. And that is the exact same thing he has done with me, the Holy One of Allen, my Savior, your Holy One, your Savior. And if we remove that Holy One part of it, that just and wrathful God, then we miss out on a whole aspect of our salvation. What happens is our salvation just be, it becomes salvation from the effects of our sins. Salvation from the enemy of our soul, Satan, which is true. That's all what our salvation includes. But he is first saving us from his wrath. He is first saving us from the wrath that we deserve fully because of who he is as our creator, what he has demanded, and what we did not do. So our salvation gets paper thin. Unless we understand, he first saves us from himself. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The one who pays a ransom for you. This is how God reveals himself as the God who calls. His voice goes out and he calls to us. Here is who I am. I am the Holy One, but I am the Holy One who is your Savior that I might yoke myself to you. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. And just before this, he had said the same thing. Listen, your default switch is set to dying in your sins. I'm the only life raft you got. He says, I told you you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins we must believe that jesus is that savior that we might be saved first first from the wrath of god that we fully deserve because of our sinfulness unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sins. So I read this verse and it makes me stop and say, 
oh God, I better get this right. Oh God, I better deal with this verse properly. Because if I miss this, if I get this wrong, if I get it backwards, if I'm not spot on, then my default switch is I die in my sins. Okay? Right? Like that's, that's what I hear here. So I want to make sure I'm believing properly. And 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 actually says to examine yourself. Check yourself. Test yourself. Take a thermometer and stick it in your ear. Test yourself and see if you're in the faith. Now, I don't know how you do that. I have a, a great verse that somebody once gave me in order to check this in particular. I think it's a great verse. I think it's an incredibly scary verse, but I think it's a great verse to check where you are in the faith. Okay, it's James chapter 2, verse 19. James chapter 2, verse 19. Here's what it says there. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the same word that Jesus used for believe that I am he is now shows up here in James chapter 2, verse 19. And it says, okay, you believe that God is one. You do well. But just so you know, the demons believe that too. And they shudder. And I'm pretty sure this whole verse is in the Bible specifically to make us shudder. Like, I'm pretty sure this verse is here just so that we stop and our hands shake a little bit when we read it in order that we can test ourselves. How is my faith, my believing in Jesus, any different than a demon's believing in Jesus? Okay? And that's a good question for us to ask of ourselves at multiple points to kind of test our own faith and how we see Jesus and how we uh, uh, respond to God. How do, how is mine any different than a demon's? Okay, and I understand that this is hard to say, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, a demon said to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. A demon used a phrase almost the same as what's in Isaiah. Okay? So that better make us pause for a moment and go, okay, so, so they know who he is, that he's the Holy One of God. I better make sure that my knowing who he is is different than a demon's knowing who he is. I better make sure that my believing in Jesus is different than a demon's believing in Jesus, right? Like, that's how I respond to that, and I think about that, and I go, okay, so I better make sure I get this right. I got to check this and make sure that this is right before him. And so what is the difference between believing in Jesus that leads to us not dying in our sins and the believing in Jesus that a demon has? I think there's a bunch. Let me give you one. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one. What is that? What immediately jumps into your mind? That's the Shema. That's the creed of faith in the Old Testament. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Right? Like, that is the statement of faith in the Old Testament. So a creedal statement is not 
enough to save us. There has to be something more. Why do I bring all of this up? Because every Sunday morning, I end the service in the exact same way. Every Sunday morning, I bring us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what we've preached on. Always, we end with an opportunity to declare Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. Every single time. And yet, wouldn't that be the equivalent of our statement or creed? The Old Testament, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. New Testament, Jesus is Lord. A statement is not enough. That's why Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, you must also believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave. Belief, oh God, Jesus is God, is not enough to save us apart from being more than just words, but being something that comes from our very heart. And, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, is really clear about the fact that no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But, but isn't that what that demon did in Mark 21, 24 anyways? Isn't that what he, a demon does in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, where, where he says, you are the Son of God. Isn't that just a declaration of lordship? Like, isn't that close at the very least? That means declaring him as Lord is more than just speaking words. It is from the depths of who we are saying, you are Lord of my life. I cannot do this on my own. Cry out, save me. That's the difference. So again, why do I bring this up? What that means is, if it's only something that can happen by the work of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, if according to Jesus, it is impossible for man, only possible with God, that means that every single Sunday when I walk up these stairs, I am fully aware that the entire message is coming to a point which is impossible every week. Doesn't matter what I'm preaching on. As I'm walking up these stairs, I know this is coming to a point where it is completely impossible. It always will. Is that not a nightmare? Is that not the nightmare you used to have when you were a kid? You'd get up in front of your, the whole class, and your teacher would ask you to do something that was imp- Maybe it was just you had the dream that you were in your underwear, and you look down, you realize you're in un- That's what I'm doing every single Sunday. I know when I'm going up these stairs, I am bringing it to a point where I can't do what I'm asking to be done every Sunday. It is either going to be a miracle from the power of the Holy Spirit or nothing's going to happen every Sunday.
So what do you do with that? If I know I'm walking up here, this is either going to be possible with God or it's going to be impossible with me. What are you doing during that time? What are you doing every week when I bring it to that same point? Because this is not just a matter of Alan convincing. According to the Bible that I'm reading and the verses that I've read, it's either going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit or will not happen at all. What are you doing during that time? Let me give you three things that you could do. Number one, pray. If it's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to ask Him to. When we come to that point in the service, you should be praying because either a name will be added to the Lamb's book of life or it won't, but it'll all be supernatural because it's not Alan's call that's going out, it's God's call that's going out. So you should be going to prayer. This is the most important part of this service. Oh God, move and call and draw and speak and bring about new life where there was not life. Bring into existence something that did not exist before because if you don't do it, it won't happen. Oh God, do it, do it right now. Work in that person's life. I know they're here and I pray that you would do it in the name of Jesus Christ. By the power of your Holy Spirit, be calling and drawing and turning over hearts right now. Pray that every single week. It's the most important part of the service. Number two, often I'll have people come to me and say something to the effect of all through the message, person right next to me was weeping. All through the message, they were just crying. I just want you to be encouraged that God was moving. I'm glad, but you know what you could have done? You could have been watching and praying, but you could also tap them on the shoulder and you can say, I can tell God is doing something in your life right now. Would you step out with me and go down to the front? I believe he wants to continue doing something in your life. So not just praying, but participating also. Because I can't see them. And you can. And so step out with them. Number three, every single week I do the exact same thing. I bring it to a point of decision, and then I go to prayer. If you haven't learned the pattern yet, as soon as I start to pray the, pr pray, the prayer team knows that's their cue to step out of their seats and come down to the front and line up across the front so that when we're done praying, they're standing there. That's the pattern. I'm just laying it all out right in front of you. This is what it looks like every single week. When I say amen, and in that prayer, I'll give an opportunity to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to put our faith fully in them, in him. But as soon as I'm done with that prayer, I know the creedal statement is not enough. Either the Holy Spirit will have begun and to do a work in that heart, or it's not happening at all. But the creedal statement, oh, you are Lord, is not enough. The words are insufficient. You have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with our mouth, Jesus Christ as Lord, and I will be saved.
But I know that that's not enough to just say a statement as if that's enough for me to be saved. But when they open their eyes again, there will be a prayer team across the front. And I'm going to do two things at the same time. Number one, I'm going to invite people to come down to the front and pray. If they need prayer for anything, this team will be there to pray with them. But more than that, if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you confessed him as Lord for the very first time, instead of heading out those doors when I dismiss in a moment, would you step out and come down to the front because they'd like to pray with you and talk to you about those next steps. This is what I'm going to do every single week. So number three, for the love of all things holy, please don't leave until I dismiss. Because this moment is a miracle. It's a miracle. It is supernatural. I don't dismiss for your sake. I dismiss for theirs. I don't dismiss so you can make it to the, to the uh, a restaurant a few minutes early or beat the traffic out. I, I, that's not why I'm dismissing. I'm dismissing so your eyes are not boring into the back of their heads so that they can have time with the Lord. That's why the pattern is what it is. The moment those doors open, people start heading out. I lose everybody. And this is a supernatural moment. God's call goes forth. We respond. This is the pattern I see in Scripture. It will be by the power of His Holy Spirit, or it won't happen at all. Either there'll be a miracle, and the impossible will happen, or nothing will happen. Either we'll succeed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in somebody's heart, or we'll fail. But ultimately, God's the one who calls. Jesus is, I am he who calls. And the default switch is set to dying in our sins. This is what Scripture says. And again, this is not the way that I I normally would deliver a message. But I really just want us to come back to this point of the fact that if we do not know him as our life raft, if we do not know Jesus Christ as the only one who can save us from the fact that, yes, he delivers us from the flames, but Isaiah chapter 33 verse 14 is really clear. Guess who he is? He's the consuming fire. He is the, it says, everlasting burnings. He is the fire. He also delivers us from the fire all through Jesus Christ, and he is the only way. I am he who calls, and I am he who saves. What do we do with that? And if you are in here right now, and you never have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, or maybe it was always just kind of, I I said the words, but it's not like it's ever made a difference, okay? Can I just say to you, you better examine yourself. Check the thermometer. How is your faith different than a demon's? And then based on what you see there, what are you going to do about it? Because God's call is going forth and he is turning over the soil of your heart. And he's saying today's the day.
Jesus Christ is enough. What do you do with him? Because either you will die in your sins or you will believe that Jesus is Lord. Will you stand with me today? I want to give you an opportunity to confess that very thing. I want to give you an opportunity to speak those words out because Romans 10 verse 9 is very clear. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe it. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. This is the only life raft we've got. And if you have not yet responded to it, respond today. Jesus is enough. Cry out, save me. Because that's the only hope we've got. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to know you in your entirety. You are more than just an encouraging and uplifting God. You are the God who is perfectly just. And every failure and every word misspoken and, and just the core of sinfulness inside of our own deceptive hearts, oh God. All of these things separate us from you and make us deserving completely of your wrath. And you are just and you are perfect in that. But you, O oh Holy One, yoke yourself to us by paying an incredible ransom and becoming what we never could, our Savior. We cannot save ourselves. And so today, again, we cry out, save us. Save me today. You are Lord. I confess you as Lord. Take every part of me. If there is any area in my life that is not yours, take it today. It's yours. It's yours. You are Lord. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead, oh Jesus. Oh God, save me. Save me today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're in here and you need prayer for anything this morning, this prayer team would love to pray with you. They committed themselves to not just pray this morning, but all week long. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss and others head out the door. Instead of heading out the door, if you, for the very first time, confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is so vitally important. We want to walk you through what this can look like for you to know and believe and understand that I am He. We want to help you with that and show you what that could be. So as others head out, instead of heading out, would you step out and come down to the front, okay? Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to be back next week. Happy Labor Day. We'll see you next week for the rest of I Am He.